Judges 3, 12 uh, to 30. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened King Eglon of Moab against Israel because they'd done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In alliance with the Ammonites and the Amalekites, he went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. So the Israelites served King Eglon of Moab 18 years. But when the Israelites cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The Israelites sent tribute by him to King Eglon of Moab. Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he fastened it on his right thigh under his clothes. Then he presented the tribute to King Eglon of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. When Eglon had finished presenting the tribute, he sent the people who carried the tribute on their way. But he himself turned back at the sculptured stones near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. So the king said, silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. Ehud came to him while he was sitting in his cool roof chamber, alone in his cool roof chamber, and said, I have a message from God for you. So he rose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into Eglon's belly. The hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the dirt came out. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule and closed the doors of the roof chamber on him and locked them. After he'd gone, the servants came. When they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought he must be relieving himself in the cool chamber. So they waited until they were embarrassed. When he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. There was their Lord lying dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed and passed by the sculptured stones and escaped to Syrah. And we just need to know that then he goes and calls Israel and they follow him and they defeat Moab. And you're probably wondering why we're we looking at Judges 3 in a commissioning and induction service for, uh, for Vicky and Nide respectively this morning. Uh, the thing is, I, and some of you will have heard me on Judges 3 before, and I'm going to look at it from a different perspective uh, here today that I think is relevant for faculty. Um, but I guess to, to start with, there's always the question of what, why would we look and what does a story about what seems like a pretty grisly affair have to do with us today? And just recently I've noticed, uh, again, there often I'll hear people talk Polygamy is the, the latest sort of thing I'm coming across. When people want to talk about the Old Testament, why it has no relevance, well, there are polygamists in the Old Testament, so what are you going to do about that? And that's really a simplistic, misguided way of using the Old Testament. It's misguided because, generally, we can't legislate for ideals, can we? So if I think of my nana, she died of emphysema, she was a heavy smoker, um, it would have been preferable if there was something that prevented her from smoking in the first place to stop such a horrible death ever happening. But there wasn't because to legislate against that, you're going to put a lot of people in jail. So that doesn't mean in a thousand years when someone comes along and digs up this layer of Australia, which is our time we lived, and they find some laws and they'll say, hey, there were no laws against smoking cigarettes. Uh, they must have loved smoking cigarettes. I thought it was a really good thing for you. would say, no, no, that... That was just, it was impossible to legislate for that. But you, you need to be able to dig up the stories told around 
the table, you know, when, when we sit down and talk with our kids about my nana. Well, that, that has, that, there's our ethical or moral ideals. In this case, it's about health, I guess. Um, but you've got to listen to the stories. So, yes, there's no law against polygamy because it was very difficult to legislate for something that was so prevalent. But if we listen to the stories, you get a different picture of what they found was ideal in that society. And that's how we should use the stories of the Old Testament generally, I think, is they're told to present the ceiling of ethics and of what's good and right in this time for, for Israel. And what I want to do here with Ehud, because in the book of Judges, it is about leadership. It's actually about kingship, I think, because you get to the end and it says, you know, there's that refrain, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone just did what they wanted to do. And so there's a sense in which we're given judges and all these cycles of stories over and over again so that we get a sense of and we're invited to think of, well, what would be the attributes of an ideal leader? And that doesn't mean that every leader has positive attributes. Look at Gideon, does some pretty nasty things. But even that is an occasion to think, well, we don't want a leader like that. But overriding that again is what kind of leader will bring life to Israel? What kind of leader will liberate us from this foreign oppression and rule that we're under? And so I think that the Ehud story is one of the... It's trying to do something like this. It is going to affirm a particular attribute of ideal leadership. And I think it's around idolatry. And it's going to contrast the people of Israel with the people, or with the person of Ehud, this leader who we'll see was, or you heard, was raised up to deliver Israel. But what this whole story, I mean, there's a lot of beautiful wordplay going on in here in the Hebrew that we don't have time to get into. But what's key to an understanding of this story is the double meaning of the name Eglon, this king of Moab, who's described as very fat. And we can even discuss whether he was very fat or whether he's a robust, tough individual. That's for another, another talk, you see. But Eglon, Eglon has two meanings. Sort of like Lee. Lee has two meanings, I've found in my life. At university, I'd always go on these university excursions and end up being <coughs> put in sharing a room with a girl because they thought I was a girl, for example, Lee. This is every bloke at university's dream come true. I know, it's terrible in those days, but you've you got to think, I was 20 years old sort of thing. But um, I was doing agriculture, so that was it. But... <laughs> think, was it? Lee, think of the ceiling. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> think of the ceiling, okay. But, but, but they can take me... Sometimes I've turned up with a last name, Travascus, but everyone thinks I'm Greek, and then I walk in, they think I'm a Greek woman, right? And I turn up, <laughs> yeah, hang on, he's a male, and he's from Cornwall. Uh, but originally... Now, Eglon's like that. It can be taken two ways. It can mean Egel, that part on the front, is calf or bovine. I like to think of it as bovine. So it's the, the word used for the golden calf most commonly before we get to this narrative here. And very likely, it has that sense of the calf-like one or, as I like to think of, a bovinity. Okay? So it could be taken as the calf-like god. All right, that, that could be one way we're going to understand his name. Alternatively, with that own on the end, Eglon, it's a, a small calf. So it could just be a small bovine. So you can take this name in one of two ways. It's really hard preaching with this bloke in the front. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you can take him as the bovinity, 
or you can take him as a small bovine. And you treat those two things very differently in the ancient world, let's just say, and we're going to see that's what happens here. But we're being asked to contrast how these two uh, people groups, though one's one on his own, Ehud, are going to attend to this bovinity, uh, this, this king. Is he a bovinity or is he a small bovine? Now, we can already anticipate how Israel will treat him by the opening of our text because it says Israel again did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh, the Lord. And that is shorthand in Judges for their idolatrous, okay? Um, We'll talk a little bit more about idolatry later because I want to make sure these two understand what it is so that they don't run into any trouble. But idolatry, we already heard that their problem is idolatry, so we anticipate there'll be some idolatrous behaviour And that seems to be what happens with the bovinity in their eyes. They've read him as the bovinity. So that when in verse 15, they've cried out to Yahweh, the Lord raises up for them a deliverer called Ehud. What do they do? They immediately send a tribute, an offering by him to King Eglon, the calf-like one, of Moab. Okay, And then verse 17... The language used in the Hebrew is used only elsewhere of making this offering to Yahweh. But on this occasion it says, and he offered the offering to, the only time in the whole Old Testament, to a human called King Eglon of Moab. Verse 18, when he completed offering the offering. So from... They probably didn't use those words, but the narrator is putting a gloss on here saying, just so we're aware, Israel is engaged in an idolatrous, uh, in the idolatrous worship of a foreign king here. Do you understand? This is the problem. We're seeing what idolatry looks like for Israel. And in Judges, the idolatry, the service of an idol, always goes hand in hand with foreign oppression. So this is what's happening here. So if that's, if that's the behaviour of Israel, idolatrous Israel, an implicit contrast is made with how Ehud treats Eglon. He takes his name another way. So notice, God raises him up as a deliverer. Israel says, we'll send you to make an idolatrous offering to the bovinity. Verse 16 Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges. He's got a murderous intent running through his blood here because he does not see Eglon as a bovinity, but where to think a small calf that he's ready to stick it to, you see? In fact, it's not just that, but we get his perspective that on the end of, uh, after offering this offering, this idolatrous offering to Eglon, verse 17, we get his own perspective on this Eglon. Because he says, he presented the tribute to King Eglon of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. I think we're intended to be looking at him through the eyes of Ehud at the moment. Ehud's got his knife ready for this bloke. He despises, it seems, Israel's sending of him to make an idolatrous uh, offering to a foreign king. And if... That's just implicit here. By the end of the story, what happens? The grisly affair, as I've just referred to a moment ago, that is amplified between two references to idols. Okay, look at verse 
19. But he himself turned back at, it's calling them the sculptured stones near Gilgal. The word is really, and I think you can pick it up off sculptured stones, it's not something you're going to go and see, say, at Mount Cutha Botanical Gardens in sculptured stones. These are serious idols, okay? These are idols at Gilgal. He turns back and sends away the idolatrous ones with him. So he sends those away and he turns back at the idols. And then verse 26, you may have noticed before, Ehud escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the idols, the sculptured stones, and he escaped to Syrah, back to the Israelites. And so there's this framing of what Ehud's going to do with this guy between two or twin references to idols. And that's very important. It amplifies the contrast because on one hand, it's making sure that, see, it's the moment of, of coming to these idols that the idolatrous ones are sent away and then he acts alone between the twin references. This leader works on his own volition. He's no longer in a misery of Israel at this point. He's working out of his own commitment, it seems, to Yahweh's rule. He's going to stick it to the small calf. The other thing that's happening here is that notice where these stones are set. They're at Gilgal. If, we, if we're sensitive readers of the Bible at this point, we think the last time we heard of Gilgal, apart from an angel going up from there in chapter 2 of Judges, is back in Joshua 4, where they set up 12 stones, right? And the 12 stones were to remind them of an historical occasion there of God has liberated you from foreign rule, Egypt. He's brought you out of death to life, and these are to remind you to fear him. And on one hand, you'd have to say, well, Israel has decided to take a sculpting knife to these 12 stones and turn them into something else that was idolatrous. On the other hand, it seems we're entitled to think that Ehud, upon seeing these, that, that, that almost marks the motivation for the action of what he'll do in between these twin references. It's he does fear Yahweh and he goes off and kills him. And if, if you think that the framing of this story, you could possibly still say, but framing with idols, doesn't that taint Ehud? What's significant here is the verbs that the narrator has used to... Uh, describe Ehud's interaction with these idols are, verse 19, but he himself turned back is the verb that can also mean, sure, turning back, it also means repentance. It's the most common word for repentance. He turns back at the idols. And then the verb used for passing by them in 26, sure, can mean pass by, but it can also mean destroy. He destroyed the idols. Now, this is just some... Uh, imaginative seriousness in going about the text here, but it's very suggestive that what we've got here is a text that's affirming some ideal attributes of leadership, attributes of a leader that will liberate Israel from this oppression they live under, this foreign rule, by removing the, the, the object of their idolatrous attention. So that's the ideal here that's, that's affirmed. In a sense, we talk about this text as prophesying about Christ, mainly because we assume God's sovereignty here. And as you keep moving through the text, you think, well, Israel keeps uh, rebelling and it keeps finding itself under foreign rule and oppression and death and so on. And you can start thinking, well, is God really going to do anything? And the truth is these texts, by being unfulfilled in a sense, end up prophetic. 
they anticipate that there will be a king who will liberate. And of course, then we're going to talk about Christ, right? And we don't, we don't need to uh, dig really deeply here just now, but you can see how it finally speaks of Christ in, in that sense. But what about here today? We've got Vicky and Nige. Sounds a bit, it almost sounds like a marriage, isn't it, me doing that with you two sitting together here and me talking about Vicky and Nige. So we want to just clarify, this is commissioning and induction. Um, Hey? They're two separate. They're two separate, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what does this say then, not just to you as leaders within the faculty, but within our faculty and within all the leaders that are, that are in this room? I think the first thing it tells is that this story unpacks what idolatry is. And I think we look at Israel and we say, it's not just that someone made a fancy stone and all of a sudden Moab just came running over the top. That's... That's not how oppression is linked with idolatry. It seems that Israel still cries to Yahweh. They still know his name. They still would say, we, Yahweh is our God. But they're blind to the fact that over time, it seems, you can imagine it happening this way, that Moab is strengthening on their border and it becomes convenient to sort of accommodate some of their ways of thinking about the world and what they should be doing. And they even like some of the clothes they're wearing and next thing you know they've taken over although in a violent way and it seems as though that's true of idolatry in our own lives today and in our own society it can come to us not because all of a sudden someone says here here is my idol it's because we're unaware that we are slowly become focused on something that takes our attention off God or off off Christ so the classic ones are the spouse and house. So you end up married to someone and so obsessed, thinking my, all my life and my hope and joy in life is dependent on this person to the point that I can disappear and this overtakes everything else, including my faith. Or it can be a house. Most people graduate from school probably not obsessed with having a house, but soon enough in our society, they find themselves with a massive mortgage and if they don't have one of those, they've got to invest a lot in maintenance because it's so important to have the house. But I think, that, I think the dangers of idolatry are more subtle than this for our society. So last night, my, one of my children said to me, so what do you think about abortion, Dad? And this was just about when I was ready to go to bed. And, uh, and I just listened to what she had to say because then she launched out on what she thought about abortion. And she said, well, you know... It's very unfair for the woman because, you know, if she has to have it, uh, that's going to be a great inconvenience for her. And she's probably not ready. It would have been bad for it anyway if she'd had it. And, and so she was talking like this, right? And, and I started thinking, right, at the moment, my daughter, who I'm raising in the Christian faith, I'm starting to hear things there that seem to come more from outside the faith than from within the faith. And this moves to the second point and relates to faculty, that we're called like an Ehud uh, to destroy that kind of idolatry if we're to liberate her and liberate our people from the oppression of that rule. So with her, it was to say, and I understand it's a complex issue. You've, you've got issues of, you know, an uh, embryo can split into two and have twins after so many days. So I know there are questions about identity and things like this. But I did want to point out to her that, well, it's interesting you call the baby an it. 
or the embryo and it? Do you think it has gender? And then um, where does the love your neighbour thing fit in here? Is this embryo a neighbour or not? We need to think through this. And so I felt it was my duty as a leader in that sense, if we spot, hey, I, I wonder if you've become entranced by the idol of self and it's all about that woman when it could also be about building a society that wants to support this woman in her situation. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that lead to a thicker, deeper experience of humanity if we were a society that could see this through? I, I was just trying to raise the questions, but I think we need to attack idolatry you know, at its root and come at it from a Christian worldview, a perspective. Or you've got Michael uh, Archer, Professor Michael Archer, in Brisbane Times or Fairfax yesterday has done surveys of his students uh, for the last, I think, 30 years at University of New South Wales. He asked them, do you believe God created the world in seven days or six days? Do you believe God created the world with evolution? Or do you not believe in God at all? Don't you care? And if you look at his statistics for the last 30 years, the numbers of people who'll say, well, God had something to do with it are just falling, falling away. And his argument was... Well, it's the internet and people are no longer so gullible when they can read the internet and therefore they're just giving away their faith. Now, to come back to faculty, and if we want to think what can we take from Judges 3, then we need to destroy ideas like this. When we see things sit up, of course we can acknowledge that there are less and less people who believe, but when we see ideas that are just saying, hey... The reason why faith is dying is because people are no longer as gullible as they used to be. Then it's time for a faculty or leaders in our church to stand up and call it rubbish and destroy it. So for faculty, it's to say to your students, read them the article and say, this can be a little confronting. Now let's pull apart the ideas that are running through this man's head and let's destroy them and let's come at it from another angle and ask why are people leaving the church, or why don't people believe? If it's parents, it's for me to then take that text to my kids and say, look what this guy says. And then it's to destroy this commitment that they may have or this danger that they'll have to, idolatry, uh, to, to, to be obsessed with. Well, it's all about knowledge, and that's why people are leaving the faith. Um, so that's how I see that this text could apply I'm hoping I've got a fac faculty that's anti-idolatrous, uh, iconoclastic, all this sort of thing. Those are two different things. Uh, but I think the final thing we want to finish on here is that the anchoring of that anti-idolatrous behaviour is, well, it has its parallel here in Gilgal. There's that Signature, if you like, of the 12 stones now made idols that were supposed to signify God's rule established in the Exodus and the need for us to fear him or for Israel to fear him. That the anchoring, of course, for our anti-idolatrous liberation of God's people, our children, people in our churches, our students, is, of course, that historical resurrection of Christ and the gospel that we remember that he sits on the throne and that he rules, and that we do need to engage with the ideas of our society very carefully and openly, but let's do the hard work as a faculty of building constructive and be proactive 
about engaging those issues from the deep resources we have in the Bible and the history of Christian faith. I'd like to finish with this, if you're taking you to uh, page five of our proceedings here, in reading the Apostles' Creed, which isn't a bad place to uh, finish. Well, for this talk, that is. We're going to continue for a while yet. (laughs) I believe in God, if you'd read with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son and our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.